Well, we are blessed this morning to have the Reverend uh, Derek Barson with us. Derek uh, is no stranger to us, and Derek and I had the privilege of serving together at 10th for a number of years, and so it's a delight to be able to serve with him again. So we welcome you, Derek, to come and bring the Word of God to us, and we trust that this would be a great encouragement to you, brother. Thank you for coming. Thanks, Jerry. It really is delightful to be with you all again, to see so many familiar faces as well as familiar faces from afar. It's a, it's a great joy for my family and I to be with you. Well, please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 3. We'll read from verse 3 to verse 8. And if you're using the Bible in the rack in front of you, you can find it on page 980. That's Philippians chapter 1 and verse 3. Our text this morning, it considers the first section of Paul's prayer for the Philippian church, a prayer that runs from verse 3 all the way until verse 11. And it includes two kinds of prayers. Paul begins in verse 3 with a prayer of thanksgiving, which is the focus of our consideration this morning. And then he transitions in his prayer in verse 9, a prayer of petition in which he prays that the love of these Philippian believers might abound more and more with knowledge and all discernments. And in our text this morning, we find Paul gives thanks to God for the Philippians' partnership in the gospel, thanking him or thanking God that not only is God doing a good work through them to their neighbors around them and the, the nations that are beyond them, but that God is doing a good work in them. That is the work of salvation that he will bring to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And here we find Paul is emphasizing both truths, not simply one or the other, but both at the same time. Well, let's turn our attention to the reading of God's Word, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, this Christmas break, you may have sat down to read a new book, just as my two girls did, engrossed in books on Christmas afternoon. And within the opening pages, you would have seen, you would have been caught up in the mood of the story. 
the atmosphere that the author has captured to transport you to another world. And as each one of us knows, the presence of mere black ink on the pages of a book doesn't mean that the storyline is without color, that it's two-dimensional, or that it's cold. And if you and I fail to note the setting, the particular terms, the, the turns of phrases, the imagery, we actually end up missing much of what the author is trying to convey to the reader. Well, what we find in our text this morning is very similar. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and the mood is one of deep affection. Paul is not at all being aloof. He is not cold. He is not writing in the abstract as if this letter was a letter that was just generic to a congregation of nameless, faceless individuals. And such a view couldn't be further from the truth. Paul describes a most intimate and special relationship between him and this church in Philippi, with his heart being for them and theirs for him being captured on the pages of Scripture for us. Paul quite uniquely refers to this church in Philippi as his joy and his crown, those whom he loves and whom he longs for. Now, Paul, you don't see this on the, on the pages of the text immediately, and that is he is writing from the recesses of a Roman prison, having been imprisoned because of the gospel, because of his call to make known the riches of salvation that we find in Christ. And it's from this prison cell that Paul writes and shows his heart yearning for this congregation with the affection of Christ, holding this church in his heart. And the uniqueness of this relationship between Paul and this church is grown out of their partnership in the gospel, which is our first point this morning. Now, in Acts chapter 16, and we won't turn there, we find uh, how this relationship began. The city of Philippi was the leading city in the district of Macedonia. It's a Roman colony, and the church in Philippi was founded during one of Paul's missionary visits. While in Philippi, Paul had gone down to the river to a place of prayer, and God had used him to cause Lydia's heart to be open to Paul's preaching of the gospel. And she and her whole household are baptized, and we find right there the very beginnings of believers being in the city of Philippi. Now, as is often the case in Paul's missionary exploits, Paul finds himself in preaching again. It's time for preaching the gospel. Lives have been transformed, finances and incomes being affected, and magistrates have been summoned. Well, while Paul is in Philippi, what happened is that Paul has cast out the demon, a demon out of a young slave girl who had been uh, working, making money for her slave masters by fortune-telling. And now with the demon being gone, the very 
opportunity for divination is also being gone, and so there's been a loss of finance. And so here we find Paul and Silas are dra- dragged off by, uh, to the Roman rulers. They are thrown into prison. Their feet are put in stocks. They've been beaten with rods. And this being very much the first century equivalent of what we find today being maximum security prisons. Paul's right there in the midst, in the middle of that prison. And Paul, together with Silas, that night, it's midnight. They begin to cry out to God in prayer. They begin to lift their voices and hearts in worship. Begin to sing hymns of adoration to God. And God causes an earthquake to strike right there, causing the foundations of the prison to be shaken. The shackles and the bonds of the prisoners are opened, and the Philippian jailer rushes in, absolutely confounded in terms of what's, what's going on, and he rushes in before Paul and Silas, and trembling in fear, knowing that God has been in the move, he cries out, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. We read on in Acts 16 that they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And they took them the same hour of the night, or and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once and he and all his family. And then he brought them up to his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Friends, this is the first snapshot of God's mission, of what God was doing in the city of of Philippi. Very close. And then I do pray that this is a word to you this morning. And then years later, we find Paul, this time together with Timothy, writing to these believers in Philippi. By this time, the church has been formally established. Marks of maturity are in place. Elders and deacons have been installed. The church is a model for, for, for others. And a, an extended relationship of intimacy and, and, and communion has been forged between this church and Paul the Apostle. And in verse 3 of our text, Paul is remembering these dear believers in Philippi, and he lifts his heart in thankful praise to God, doing so in overwhelming joy, grateful for their partnership in the gospel from the very first day of their salvation until now, being partakers with Paul of grace, grace for the ministry and mission of the gospel. See, friends, not only are these believers partakers of saving grace, but as one commentator notes, they identify with and are in thorough support of Paul's gospel ministry. He is not alone in his suffering. In fact, towards the end of the letter to the Philippian church, we see that Paul writes that that no church, when he had left the, the, uh, Macedonia, no church 
had entered into partnership with him in giving and receiving, except the Philippian church. They alone were concerned for his well-being, for his physical care, for his material provision. And like Paul, they are not ashamed of the gospel or of the ministry of the gospel to those that do not have Christ. These Philippians knew that from the very beginning of their faith, that to share in Christ, to share in Christ was to be a partaker of Christ and his matchless benefits. But to share in Christ and his benefits would also mean that they would be sharers together with him of his sufferings. You see, to be a partaker of Christ would bring them into close proximity and contact with the inherent conflict that comes with the ministry of the gospel. To be reviled, to be persecuted, to be falsely accused on account of the name of Christ. And so instead of hiding the light that was in them, or as Christ says, putting a lamp under a basket or under a bed, these Philippian believers are on mission with the gospel to those around them, to their neighbors and to their colleagues and to the nations beyond them in their partnership with Paul. And so from the very first moment in which God has worked salvation in these Philippians, he has been at work through them for the advancement of the gospel. And so the reason that Paul's thanksgiving to God is, is, is for their partnership in the gospel, but it is also informed by a more basic reality. He thanks God for them, that he who has done a good work through them is also doing a good work in them, which is my second point. God's good work in the Philippians. See, friends, what's important for us to note is that the Philippian believers' mission and their partnership in the gospel follows upon God's work of salvation in them. In other words, their partnership in the gospel is in fact consequent to their salvation by the same gospel. And it's here that you and I need to pause for a moment and ask the question, what is the gospel? Now, some today believe that the gospel is a way of life. It's what life looks like when one follows Christ. But when we have a close consideration of what, in fact, the gospel is, that's not actually true. And such a view can very easily be understood to be a requirement to put on expected religious norms, which will then, in fact, enable you to find favor with God. Kind of clean up your acts, be good to others, and you'll make God a debtor such that he ought to love you, that he ought to pardon you, and he ought to show you favor. But that's not the gospel of Christ. Rather, that, in fact, is a form of self 
salvation, a kind of behavioral modification that justifies or supposedly justifies oneself before God. A view of this, this kind of view of the gospel, in fact, centers upon oneself. It fails to take into account the very heinousness of sin. It fails to take into account the depravity of your heart and mine and the absolute holiness and majesty, splendor of who God is. And ultimately, such a view entails a thorough rejection of Christ and his perfect work on the cross for sinners such as you and I. Friends, the Bible is not a book that is centered around you or around me, but from the very first words all the way through to the end, the Bible is first and foremostly about God. At the center of God's redemptive work in the Scriptures is Christ. And these Scriptures teach us that the Gospel is good news. It's a message. The Gospel is a message that is to be heralded. It's a message that is to be heard. And it's a message that's to be believed. And good news, this Gospel, by definition, is not a lifestyle to be practiced or followed, but at its core, it is the most astonishing news about what God has done for sinners such as us in Christ. And it should be heralded, such news should make the news every morning and every night, heralded by every news anchor, at the front page of the newspaper every morning and every edition, should, we should find the headlines splashed with titles such as, Christ died for the enemies of God. Hope for the hopeless. The dead receive life. Sinners are condemned no more. Or what about grace, lavish grace for the undeserved? I want to qualify something, and that is, is that the gospel is good news to be believed, but in receiving Christ, resting upon him and his work of salvation, sinners are changed. We are born again by the Holy Spirit. We are made new creations in Christ, no longer being enslaved to sin or to its captivating power. But we are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And though the gospel can't be equated with a transformed life, the fruit of the gospel certainly bears evidence of changed lives. Lives that are different because the person's, your and my internal principle has been changed. The reality within me is now different, such that all that flows from within flows from a heart that is being changed by Christ, a heart that is being made new by Christ, and a heart that is now under the lordship of Christ. See, when we consider verse 6 
in our text this morning, we see that salvation is a work of God. It is God who begins or has begun a good work in you, and it is God who will bring this work of salvation to completion. In other words, salvation in its entirety is in fact a work of God. What a marvelous, marvelous comfort to the soul when we think that our salvation is not dependent upon me, but it rests on the work of God. That from the very beginning of God working in us and to the end, He preserves believers to the end, that none will be snatched out of His hand. And this doctrine is commonly called the perseverance of the saints or the preservation, God's preservation of the saints. In other words, there is nothing that can separate us from God. There is those who have been bought with the shed blood of Christ are kept to the very end. He is the originator. He is the sustainer of our salvation. He is the author, the perfecter of our faith. God holds us in the midst of our storms, in the midst of trials, in the midst of temptations, in the midst of the very darkest of days, I am so grateful that at those moments and at that point, it does not rest upon you or me or the strength of our faith. But most basically, we are in the hand of the Lord and He will hold us to the very end. Friends, listen to Paul in Romans chapter 8. I'll read for us from verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Friends, this is like steel to the soul. It strengthens weak knees. It sets our gaze upon Christ above, our only hope. Friends, there are three little words that encapsulate the doctrines of grace. Three words that are pregnant with so much meaning. Three words that shed light upon verse 6, Paul's statement that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And these are the three words, God saved sinners. In other words, the work of salvation is a work of God alone. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he is the sole agent in man's salvation, a salvation that is not for the righteous, but is for sinners. Men and women who have broken the law of God, men and women who are under the just wrath of God, without any ability to save themselves. And it's into this most gloomy and helpless situation that God is most gracious, providing a Savior a working salvation within us from beginning to end. You know how Paul begins his letter to the Philippians? He says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And this is what it means to be a Christian, to be in Christ. If you are in Christ, you have all the benefits that Christ gained in his death and his resurrection. You have his righteousness, a righteousness that is not your own, but it's a righteousness that comes from the outside. It comes from another. In fact, it's an, we could call it an alien righteousness, but it's the righteousness of Christ. And it's because of this that Paul calls Christians saints. We are saints of God. Now, the term Christian is, in fact, only used three times in the Bible. And the Scripture describes Christian in other terms more commonly, that being that a Christian is a disciple, a Christian is a believer, and a Christian is a saint. Now, for some, you might be familiar with the... Uh, Roman Catholic uh, veneration of certain uh, uh, believers to the point of sainthood in which they canonized. Uh, uh, John uh, Cardinal Newman was this last year in the Roman Catholic Church. But what we find in Scripture is that there is no veneration of certain believers who are more holy than others to the place of sainthood. What Scripture teaches is that all those who are in Christ are saints, not because of their good work, but because of Christ's good work on their behalf. We've been set apart. That's what it means to be a saint. Set apart unto God, set apart unto His service. And this is the good work that God has begun in us and will complete in us when he calls us home one day. 
My third and final point is simply stated as follows, both and, not either or, both and, not either or. So often in the church today, there can be a kind of unhealthy or incorrect dichotomy that is set up with some emphasizing the mission of the church and others kind of doctrinal fidelity of the church, a kind of mission of the church versus the, the, the teaching of what the gospel itself is. But the gospel of Christ and the mission of Christ are not antithetical to one another. They're not set up in opposition one to another. As we have already seen that the gospel concerns the good news of God in Christ. Salvation is from God alone, from beginning to end. And the mission of the church can be most pointedly summarized and seen in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 28, where Matthew writes Jesus' words when Jesus says to his disciples, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded unto you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the mission of the church. And so, as we find in Scripture, the gospel of God and the mission of God are not opposed. The one is not liberal and the other is not conservative. But far too frequently, the church has failed to be on mission with the gospel as outlined in Scripture. Too often, there is a tendency towards one or towards the other to either contend for the faith that was once delivered to, for the saints or to the saints or to emphasize the mission of the church, but to do so in a way that is frequently capitulating to the surrounding context or culture. See, friends, when we understand the gospel, when we glory in the Christ of the gospel. We are unashamed of the gospel, putting no confidence in the flesh. Our hearts, the, the eyes of our hearts have been opened to the wonder of God, to love God, and also to love our neighbors, to, sure, to share the good news of Christ with them as they see how this news has transformed us. And that we, in being around them, cause them to lend an ear to hear the message that should make headline news each and every day. Third Reformed Church, as you go into 2020, may you know the good work, that good work that God has begun in each and every one of you, that he will complete that which he has begun. And that God and God alone thoroughly saves sinners such as you and me. And then secondly, that he who is at work in you desires to be at work through you. That you would live on mission with the gospel each and every day. That this would not be something that we do via the missionaries out there. 
that yes, we support and we are in partnership in the gospel with missionaries out there. But God has so captivated our hearts that we, that we live lives unto our King, but also in response to those around us who are in need of Him. And so as the church of Christ, we need to understand the, the relationship between the church as organism to the church as institution, or put it more colloquially, the church as scattered from this place to the church as gathered in this place. The way in which God calls His people to Himself each Lord's Day, and the way in which He calls each and every one of us into the various vocations and callings that He has given us, where we are to be light and salt in the world, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to work for the common good of those around us, and to do all things for the glory of God as we pilgrims on the way long for that celestial city, Zion, the new Jerusalem. When we consider the work of God in us and through us, we're to ne never ever diminish the preaching of God's Word, God's Word, His work of grace through the sacraments, for all ministry flows from and is orientated by the pulpit. But in 2020, Third Reformed Presbyterian Church, glory in Christ alone, be on mission wherever you find yourselves, and do not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God, not only for yourself, but for neighbors and for nations alike. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the cross, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Would you work in us and through us for your glory, for the good of this church, and for the good of our, the surrounding neighborhoods? We ask that you would do this in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.